Okay, uh, this a unit that I've been doing the last couple weeks is on prayer. Jesus had spoken in the Gospel of John chapter 16 to his disciples about the nature of prayer and how prayer would be changing for them, uh, that now they would be praying in his name. He would be at the right hand of God interceding. And so we understand the nature, uh, the generalized nature of that prayer. And then uh, in part two of the, of the uh, lesson, which I did last week, and I'll tie up again this week before I start the new outline, uh, Jesus gave us the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and we studied that. We took it apart, one of the greatest prayers of all time, in which Jesus, in a few sentences, covers every need that we have as, as humans. And so we talked about uh, our Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The first part of that being, Lord, you are great, you are holy, you are magnified, you are the creator. All of the hollowness, the holiness of God that we need to understand that before we come and have our individual prayer needs, we, we honor the greatness and sovereignty of God. All of that is even as Jesus did it. Uh, and then Jesus, we talked about, give us this day our daily bread. We talked about what the daily bread was. Uh, and, and then we talked uh, about lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I wanted to tie that up a little bit so that we understand what that, that is. And, and I talked to you about the fact that the Greek word, the original Greek word, uh, meaning temptation, uh, is only one word. And, and it's used in two different ways. It's used to talk about trials that God may bring into our lives, uh, testing in which God is uh, enabling our character to become stronger the way he did with Abraham when he told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, but it also relates to temptations brought by Satan as he deals with the uh, lusts of your heart and the lust of the flesh. And he knows your weaknesses and he will come to you uh, predicated on those weaknesses and lead you into temptation. And that's the specific nature of that prayer. Jesus is not asking us to pray that God doesn't use trials for us. Jesus is asking us to pray that, that God will keep Satan from leading us into, uh, into temptation from the lusts of our flesh and our heart. That's the prayer. Lord, you know my weaknesses. Keep me away from the things that I need to be kept away from. Uh, the example I gave in uh, um, Monday was, you know, it's like somebody saying, I believe the Lord has called me to preach in bars. Um, and so I'm going to be spending my life going into bars because uh, I'm going to be bringing people uh, to Jesus. Uh, the only problem is I have a little bit of a predilection for, for alcohol, but I know Jesus will protect me. Well, folks, let me tell you something. That's one of those prayers. Lead me not in a temptation. You shouldn't be going in there, all right? Maybe you think that's what God wants you to do. If you think God told you to do that, I think you've got to go back on your knees and ask for a second opinion. <laughs> I would say that's a second opinion. Although I told you the really great story about the fact that my father's two brothers who were uh, miscreants, um, and at some point in their life, they, they disappeared and they were both married at this point. They were, you know, in their 30s and 40s. They disappeared for 24 hours, and they had parked themselves in a, in a local gin mill. And their wives called my father and said, do me a favor, John, would you go down and get them home? So my father goes down, and he walks into this bar, which he had never been in in his life. And they see him, they're playing pool, and they go, whoa, John, what are you doing here? 
He said, I came to bring you home. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, we're not going home. Nobody's going to tell us to go home. We're staying. And my father said, fine. Then I'm going to get up on the bar, and I'm going to start preaching about Jesus. <laughs> oh, no, you wouldn't do that. I certainly will. I'll do it right now. All right, all right, all right. We'll go. We'll go. There it was. That was the kryptonite. Who knew? Preaching about Jesus. That was it's an absolutely true story. He told me that a number of times. Uh, and so it, that's the nature of somebody who was called to go into a bar. <laughs> All right? It was called. But you got to be careful about that. And so we understand, lead me not into temptation, what it means. Look, at turn, if you would, as I wrap that part of it up, in James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to, uh, to death. Isn't that magnificently written? I mean, you see this whole thing. It, it starts with an evil desire, all right? And Satan sees it, and he comes, and he tempts you. And then what happens next? You're dragged away by your evil desire as you put the desire into action, uh, and, and it moves forward in action, and you're enticed. And then after the desire has conceived, almost as if you're talking about birth, really, after it is, it is uh, conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when it is full-blown, sin full-blown, it gives birth to death. Wow. That's why Jesus said, well, lead us not into temptation. That's what this is all about, understanding the nature of this. And so the last part of the, uh, of the prayer uh, uh, is, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so you're at, think about what you're asking God. You're saying to God, Lord, as I forgive others, you forgive me. Or the inverse of that is, as I don't forgive others, don't forgive me. Ooh, I never thought I was praying for that. That's pretty deep. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, it first of all, does not mean that you are praying that God uh, will uh, take away your salvation if you don't forgive others. Let me make that perfectly clear. Uh, you are saved solely by the blood and grace of Jesus Christ. Nothing that you ever did or would do or will do is impacting the salvation. Once God saves you, you're saved forever. The Bible is clear about that. You're held in the, in the, in the hands of God. No one, as, as the scripture has told us, no one can take us out of his hand. Uh, and so let's understand what that, what that means. Uh, and so Jesus is telling us there that we need to be constantly forgiving others. As we pray to God, give us a spirit of forgiveness, Lord. Let us be aware of the fact that we need to forgive others. This is a must. And the analogy here uh, in terms of this prayer is Jesus washing uh, the feet of the disciples. Turn to John 13. John 13, verse 8. 
Actually, we'll start with verse 7. Jesus replied, you do not really realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And Jesus is now washing the feet of the disciples. Verse 8, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Typically Peter, isn't it? Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath only needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Boy, boy again, I just love the, the literate uh, impact of the words. They're so incredible here. A person who has had a bath only needs to wash his feet. What did Jesus mean by a person who has had a bath? You have had a bath. You're saved. It is the nature of salvation that you have been washed in the blood of Jesus. And so as he said to Peter, you have had a bath. You're saved. You've given your heart to God because you've accepted me as your Lord and Savior. And therefore, you have had a bath. But even people who have had a bath of salvation walk in an evil world, and the evil tends to come up on your feet. You walk and you're affected by that. So what is Jesus saying? It means what Jesus is saying here that, that you need to have daily forgiveness in your life. And so that's what this, the, the, the Lord's Prayer is referring to. Lord, for, forgive us our trespasses or debts as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. That is the aspect that Jesus is speaking about. Yes, you're saved. You're not asking in that prayer for salvation. Rather, you're saying to God, I want to have the communion that I can only have with you when I have my feet washed. Now, what does that mean? It means this. Jesus has recognized that, that unless you, you are in a state of forgiving others, your relationship with God is occluded. You got that? Occluded, as if you had a blood clot, and the, and the blood cannot flow. When you have, when God wants you to have a continuing relationship with him, and so you now become an unforgiving person. The spirit of unforgiveness has somehow invaded your life. You're still saved, but you have this issue where you are not forgiving people. And so what happens? You are, your relationship, your intimacy with God the Father is occluded. You don't have the ability to have those prayers responded to by God because of that issue. And so this becomes critical. God will not use you in ministry. So some of us have said, oh, I want to be used. I want God to use me, yet I don't see this happening. Well, I would say to you, have you cleared up uh, the issue of unforgiveness in your life? Because this is one of the big deals that I see uh, in Christians, that there will still be some aspect of their life, some part of their life in which there's that closet of unforgiveness. Somebody hurt you bad, all right, and you have never gotten over it. Look up, folks. You've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. I understand you've been hurt, but no hurt, no hurt eclipses the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus has said to us, forgive, you need to be able to get to the point where every single person or entity in your life that has hurt you, that you have forgiven them. 
Every single one of them. I want you to get up every day and be able to have a clean slate where you don't have any of these issues in your life. You need to forgive. Uh, And that prayer effectively says that. Lord, forgive my debts as I've forgiven others. Meaning, Lord, teach me. Teach me. Guide me. Help me. Let me understand that need. And God will do that. You see that uh, it becomes a critical part of the Lord's prayer. And so I'm very much uh, impacted by this, especially as I teach the men's group on Monday. There are guys that are carrying around scar tissue from the time they were kids. They harbor resentment against their parents or their father. Some of us have resentments against marriages that have been broken up, uh, and we still carry this. Listen, folks, some of you will only give this up when they put dirt on you. And that's not the way God wants you to live. God wants you to have that freedom that you have that intimacy with God. And so as you pray, as you understand this prayer that Jesus made, you need to get over this. You need to forgive. Uh, and God will give you the ability to forgive. He, he will do this. Uh, uh, and just turn if you would, but since we're studying this, I want to give you another verse and I want to make sure that we, it's not misunderstood. Turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, there are people that review that, read, read that and interpret that as saying, well, see, you can lose your salvation. It doesn't say that at all. What, the, what Jesus is talking about there is, again, the foot washing, okay? The daily walking, the daily intimacy, meaning that as you walk daily, if you're not forgiving people, then God is not going to have an intimate relationship with you. Intimacy with God, the ability to speak to him and have him speak back to you. That's what this is about, intimacy with God. Uh, And so this is important for us to understand. An unforgiving spirit is a serious sin and should be confessed to God. And that's in the Lord, effectively what the Lord's prayer is about. So if you find yourself, if you say to to me, you know, John, I I just, uh, you know, here's the classic. Well, I forgive, but I can't forget. I forgive, but I can't forget. Well, effectively what you're saying is I don't forgive. How can you forgive if you don't forget? Forgetting, not forgetting means I still have that that scar and I look at that scar and I see that scar and it resonates with me. God doesn't want that. How would we feel if God didn't forget our sins? Does that make you feel good? Oh, you're forgiven, but boy, I got a list here. I I got a list when I see your name, boy. You know, you're forgiven, you're saved. Instead, God, we know that when we are saved, that God has taken our sins and put them as far away as the east is from the west. That's what the Bible says. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, really, that's God. That's God. And so he's inspiring us uh, to to, uh, do this. Uh, And so remember this, and this is key. Nothing that you do in your works has anything to do with salvation. Let's look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We cite it often, but you can't cite it enough. And by the way, I'm reading, I'm halfway through a fantastic book that I would recommend to every one of you. You know, I've been a big uh, fan of Eric Metaxas. You know, he wrote that book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is fantastic. Well, he has just come out with a book on the biography of Martin Luther. 
And Martin Luther is a, a magnificent uh, human being. Certainly in the annals of Western civilization, if you put to the top five people together in, in the history of Western civilization who have impacted uh, the Western civilization, Martin Luther would be in that top five, as most likely who would be St. Paul. Uh, but Martin, what a book. And, and uh, one of the things that, that Martin Luther focused on was the fact that, that you're not saved by your works. All right, you're not saved, sola fide, meaning it's only through the faith on Jesus Christ that you're saved. And so look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Well, there it is. Okay, there it is. You didn't work to get your salvation, and you're not going to work to get yourself out of salvation. It is totally by the gift and grace of Jesus Christ, all right, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so when you see this and understand that Jesus is saying that your, your heavenly Father will forgive you only as you forgive others, well, that would somewhat imply that there's an aspect of working. Well, I've got to work my way through that. No, 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 no. Don't go there. You see, that's why we read the Bible in the context of the entire Bible, not a verse here and a verse there. No, it means that you will not have the intimacy with God uh, on a daily basis to be used in ministry if you have an unforgiving spirit. Uh, and so I hope, in fact, that that answers a lot of your questions. Um, that's effectively the end of our, our period on the Lord's Prayer. And now we're going to look at uh, Gospel of John chapter 17. And it's interesting because what we're going to focus on here is what many theologians called the real Lord's Prayer because the Lord's Prayer that we spoke about is really better known as the disciples' prayer. Jesus is giving the disciples the template for how to pray. But now... Uh, in, God, in John 17, you're going to see Jesus praying to God the Father. This is one of the most incredibly unique situations where you have a front row seat to see God praying to God. The Son praying to the Father. So let's look at that. John 17, verse 1. And Jesus said, as G, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Wow. Man, is that powerful? I mean, is that powerful when you see Jesus uh, speaking? When, when, when people tell you, well, Jesus never said he was God. What, do you, what, what Bible are you reading? <laughs> Jesus never said he was God. You know, it's almost every chapter. It's, it's so clear. Here's another example. He's saying, glorify me with the glory that I had and shared with you before the world began. Before there was anything, there was Jesus. There was God the Father. There was the Holy Spirit. Uh, and Jesus was invested uh, with that power. And so here you see a prayer between two members of the Godhead. Uh, and the prayer contains the simplest 
of sentences, though the ideas are incredibly profound. Uh, and, and so it's amazing as we see the, the utter simplicity of the truth of God that we often cannot understand. And so here in this section of scripture, uh, this prayer has three parts. Uh, Jesus is praying for himself first in verses 1 through 5. Uh, he then prays for the disciples in verses 6 through 19. Uh, and then his prayer is that all should follow them in faith in the coming years. That's verse 20 to the end. But the shortest part of the prayer is for his own interest. Uh, and, uh, and so you see this is very much distinguished from the Our Father, which was a disciple-pointed prayer. Uh, this one is Jesus' prayer. It has been properly called the, the high priestly prayer, for Jesus intercedes for us here as our high priest before the throne of God. And so the first of the petitions are found in verses 1 and 5. It is the prayer that the Father would glorify Jesus. Now, and as a result of glorifying Jesus, Jesus would in turn glorify the problem. Well, the immediate problem is, what does, well, what does that mean, glorify Jesus? What does glorifying Jesus mean? It, the English word there really doesn't do it justice uh, and when you, and in terms of our human uh, vocabulary. Uh, and so as we understand, when we, when we peel it back, we understand that, first of all, Jesus possessed a certain glory with God before the incarnation. Uh, and second, that his, his glory was God's glory as well. Third, that Jesus did not possess this glory as he walked in this earth in his flesh. He gave up that glory, mean, meaning the very physical manifestation of the power of God, the light and power, uh, the very nature of God himself. Then when God in, comes to this earth, it is so awe-inspiring as we come into uh, contact with him that we often cannot even look at him. And so Jesus is saying here, Father, restore the original glory that I have now, Father. Give it back to me. Uh, yet we know that did, there is a sense that Jesus did uh, show his glory from time to time even in this world. And the disciples saw it. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 2. And the glory of God here, meaning the ability to do incredible miracles that no one before or since has ever done. John chapter 2, uh, and this is in the marriage of Cana, where Jesus turns the water into wine. And uh, look, look at uh, verse 9. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who, drew, who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and their disciples put their faith in him. So the very fact that Jesus made, uh, and you'll pardon me to my Baptist friends, the greatest vintage of wine in the history of of the world, the greatest vintage of wine in the history of the world, not grape juice, but wine. And why? Because the master uh, of the banquet, after tasting it, 
marvels that this is the first time. This is incredible. You, unlike everybody else who serves uh, a, a wedding feast, a bacchanal as you would have it, where people get bombed, not on grape juice, they at the end, when they're insensible as to what you're serving them, you serve the best. Oh, what a miracle. All right, what a miracle. It wouldn't be much of a miracle to serve grape juice. That'd be almost like a car trick. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, but I want you to understand that, that in the magnitude, in the magnitude of this miracle, the disciples see the glory of God. All of a sudden they go, oh, wow, we just started with him. This is unbelievable what we're seeing here. We didn't expect this. This is amazing. And so what you see here is that the glory of God, the glory of God basically winds up being uh, the manifestation of the physical attributes of God. Um, and the better word to understand the, the terminology of glory, and Jesus is asking God, return your glory to me that I gave up when I came to this world, is a Hebrew world word called the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory. Uh, and when you study the scripture, you will see that the Shekinah glory is the visible manifestation of the presence of God. And, and that it would come from time to time. And that when people came in the presence of the physical manifestation of God, of the power of God, that they almost could not look on it. Uh, and we have examples of this. But the, the, the physical manifestation of the power of God, the Shekinah, is, the, is at the heart of understanding of the meeting of God with man. All right? The meeting of God with man. It relates, first of all, to the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God told him that, that he would meet with man, man on top of the atonement cover. Uh, and, and it effectively is as if you walk with God, that God is walking with you. And we know this from understanding uh, the Garden of Eden, that that's where it says that, that God walked in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine what that had to be like? But the other thing is that uh, you see that the primary purpose of the temple was to be the repository of the glory of God. The Ark of the Covenant is in the temple. God is there uh, on the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, but that doesn't guarantee that, that God will, will remain with us forever. Uh, and we see examples of this uh, where, you, where you see that, yes, the power of God, the Shekinah glory of God is in the temple, but there are times when the Shekinah glory of God is no longer in the temple. And I've given you some examples that I'd like to go over with you on this to, to show you this. First of all, I want you to look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18. This relates to the glory of God. Verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, the temple, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them, and they left. It was a vision of what would happen because Israel had been disobedient to God. Shortly thereafter, they would be taken captive by the Babylonians. And so the glory, the very Shekinah presence of God left prior 
to, to this happening because of the continued disobedience uh, of God. Uh, and so you see this. The result was the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, now, in the second temple built, after that temple was destroyed, the temple that was around when Jesus walked in this earth, you would see here where Jesus speaks also about the Shekinah power of God leaving again. Look at Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to call his attention to the buildings. Do you see all these things, he said? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another, Everyone will be thrown down. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus is telling them that the very Shekinah presence of God would not invest itself in the temple, that it would leave the temple. The Jews had a chance to embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, their Messiah, and they refused to do that. So you understand now the Shekinah presence of God. And so Jesus is praying to God, restore the glory that I had before Creation. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. I want to give you a sense here of the enormity of the Shekinah presence of God, how incredible it is. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. This is the creation account. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Now, at this point, that refers to the Shekinah presence of God. The sun hasn't been created yet. The sun would be created later. This is so profound as to understand this, is that it is the very Shekinah light of God, the creator, at that point, that is lighting this world. How? I don't know. Okay? I don't know. But that's the nature of, of what we're looking at. Look also in verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the, the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days after, ye, after days, and, days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. Meaning what? It means in verse 14, that's when he created the sun. Do you see this? Does this blow your mind? Verse 3, the sun wasn't created. He did that in verse 14. And so the nature of verse 3 is the Shekinah light of God himself. The power of God, the glory, the glory of God himself is doing that. And so you see this. And so an amazing situation as you, as you, as you, as you, you get that sense of how great uh, this is. Look at exa uh, uh, Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, verse, uh, well, let's look at verse 14. After Moses had gone down, the mountains of the people. He consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain. The Shekinah glory of God is often referred to as a thick cloud and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. Does that sound better than a movie? Cecil B. DeMille never, never could come and, and replicate that. You want to see the Shekinah power of God, the glory of God? There it is, as you see it, uh, in tremendous light and thunder uh, and smoke and fog. 
all of it, all of it, incredibly so. Uh, and we know that, that Moses, when he went up to get the, the uh, stone tablets the second time, he was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And it says that he spoke directly with God. He spoke directly to God. Uh, and, and as God gave him the Ten Commandments again on the stone tablets. Uh, and it says uh, in the in scriptures that Moses neither ate nor drank for 40 days. Can you imagine? He didn't drink nor eat in 40 days, meaning he was sustained by the power of God. And when he came down off the mountain, it says that his face, his very countenance, shined so brightly that people couldn't look at him. Can you imagine? They couldn't look at his face because the light, the Shekinah glory of God had reflected into his face and it was so powerful that they were blinded that he had to put a veil on his face in order to communicate with the people. Can I get an amen? amen. You have any doubts at all about the, about the glory of God? what Jesus was referring to here. It's, 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 it's just unbelievable when, when you come uh, and, and recognize this uh, and, and see this. Now look also, Matthew chapter 17. And this is now on the Mount, Mount of Transfiguration, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took him with Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just, there, just then there he appeared before them, Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. This, my friends, is the glory of God. This is how God will be when you see him. This is how Jesus will be when you see him in heaven. This is what he will appear like. His face shone like the sun. The power, his clothes being the purest white light that you could ever have. This is what Jesus gave up in order to come to this earth to die on the cross. Can you imagine that kind of sacrifice? That God loves you that much? That he would give that, all that up, all that glory up and come here and walk uh, in, in this evil world and be sacrificed on the cross by evil men so that we would be saved forever. You understand the nature of God. Don't ever think that God doesn't love you. He loves you in the most profound way that human beings can't even wrap their arms around it. Uh, and so you see it. This is the Shekinah glory of God. And we're going to continue this next week as I, as I finish up this lesson. But it's an important lesson to understand exactly how Jesus prayed. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for, for the words that you've given us, for the lesson today. Lord, I ask you that it resonate in our heart, that, have, that we have a greater understanding of what you gave up to come here and be our Savior. And where you are today, in the presence that you have today, as we understand the true Shekinah glory of God, Lord, let it grow in our hearts this week. Protect our people. Bring them back safely next week. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.